a Pearson Harnish, but a huge third down conversion. You got the game on? Yep. On the move, down to the 24-yard line of St. Francis. Who's winning? He, he won't say the score. Laid up and waited for the pass. Short drop Come out on, of the gun. who's winning? Rifles towards the right corner, complete to Vander Cooey, who steps across the plane. Ah, say the damn score. You're listening to the original Say the Damn Score podcast, part of the Say the Damn Score podcast network. Here's your host, Logan Anderson. Welcome to episode 117 of the Say the Damn Score podcast. As you just heard the big voice guy say, I'm Logan Anderson, a freelance sportscaster in the Twin Cities metro area. As always, this podcast is dedicated to sportscasting and sharing stories and ways to improve in the business by talking to sportscasters from all over the country and beyond for that matter. If you're a fan of the show, please subscribe to the podcast on the app of your choice and share the podcast with your friends on your favorite social media outlet. We are recording at the world-famous Say the Damn Score studio here in my spare bedroom in Burnsville, Minnesota. This week's episode is with Chuck Cooperstein. He is the voice of the Dallas Mavericks. And a little bit of news about this spare bedroom, the world-famous Say the Damn Score studio. It will be moving in the near future, and that is because it's going to need to accommodate a third person in the Anderson family. That is correct. We are expecting in November our first child, my wife Sarah and I, and to say we're excited would be an understatement, but to say we are not nervous and a little bit concerned about everything going on right now, both health-wise and economically, would be a bold-faced lie as well. So um, there is definitely a sportscasting angle to this. There always is, one way or another, uh, with our life, it seems. But I actually found out the news via text message from my wife while I was in Rochester, Minnesota, doing what I believe, without doing a deep fact check, was the very last college basketball game at any level of the year. It was the NJCAA National Tournament in Rochester, Minnesota. Everybody else had shut down the day before, which was March 12th. And for whatever reason, the NJCAA Division Three people decided everyone's here. We're going to finish the tournament. They played the Final Four and the championship game in the same day. And I found out with a text message from Sarah with a picture of two pregnancy tests with plus signs. Not just one. She had to double check. It was in the middle of the national championship game. My analyst was making a point. I took a quick look down at my phone, and if you if you rewatch the broadcast, you can hear an audible, whoa, in the middle of his point, and I think he was a little bit confused, and you know what? That's going to be okay that uh, he was, but that is how we found out, or how I found out anyway. She obviously knew a little bit before that, but the day after the NBA Major League Baseball and the NCAA had suspended or canceled their seasons was the day I found out that we would now have a third person to consider in all of our future sportscasting career decisions and her teaching career decisions as well. Because most of our decisions on where we're going to be, what we're going to do, have been based around me. It's a selfish industry. It just is. I've turned down jobs that my wife didn't want to go to, but uh, we moved to Minnesota because I wanted to chase opportunities here, and she made a sacrifice, and 
Now we have a extra variable that we need to consider when we go forward making the rest of the decisions. So who knows what that means for my career, positive or negative, or for this podcast for that matter. But to say we are thrilled would be a huge understatement and... We can't wait until November when when this little bundle of joy is going to come back into the world. So um, that's our announcement. That's the news. The world-famous Say the Damn Score Studios will be moving down to our basement where we're putting in a wall to make a third bedroom instead of being in the current spare bedroom upstairs. That's probably way more than you wanted to know. But now to our guest, which is really the reason you've come here to begin with, and it's a good guess. We have Chuck Cooperstein of the Dallas Mavericks, longtime voice there, and uh, we'll just get right into it. And Chuck, what are you doing during this time of social distancing? Uh, a lot of reading, uh, you know, online, just trying to keep up with everything that might be going on in sports. Uh, you know, I try to. Uh, I try to limit the amount of news watching that I do, uh, you know, regarding the events of the day, uh, you know, just because it just becomes so repetitive. I think I can get pretty much everything I need, uh, you know, in an hour and an hour and a half. And then uh, there's a lot of Netflix and uh, Amazon Prime watching that's uh, going on and some book reading. But uh, it's it's certainly not what I want. And I'm sure it's it's not really what, uh, you know, anybody who's going through the same thing wants right now. What books are you reading? Well, I've got a, I've got a Tom Clancy novel uh, that I'm in uh, the process of reading, even though it's obviously not Tom Clancy because he's no longer with us. <laughs> uh, I love David Baldacci books. And uh, I, I just got done uh, with uh, with his latest uh, you know, basically, you know, thrillers, political thrillers, uh, those types of things. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm, I, I guess I should start uh, getting into more, um, you know, uh, you know, real realistic books. I guess not, you know, not uh, non novels. I guess, uh, I, uh, but um, you know, I, I, at that point, when I read, generally, I want escapist reading. I, I'm not necessarily looking for something that's going to drive my brain absolutely insane. I've always found... I guess not, nonfiction was the term I was looking for. Of course, I couldn't come up with that on time. I'm supposed to be a broadcaster and have the way with words, but uh, for some reason I missed on that. <laughs> I've always found personally that my belief is that reading, even if it's fiction or novels, is still really vital to being an excellent broadcaster just because of of the way if you read great novels you're reading uh, great sentence structure unique vocabulary and adjectives and i've always found that fiction is really important i think to being creative if nothing else what are your thoughts on that never really thought of it in those terms but uh you know I, i'm i'm decidedly old school when it comes to you know how i prepare to do a game you know, I, I handwrite everything uh, and and primarily because I do think it helps with memory. And the fact that you are going to read that, uh, I think, reinforces your memory. Uh, so, um, you know, I I, I, I would agree, I would agree with that. And especially in, in the case of fiction, uh, I, I do think there's uh, a way for authors uh, to use vocabulary in such a way uh, that uh, can be even more descriptive, emotive. Uh, as opposed to when you're just writing, 
you know, about historical events. And, and not to say that you can't do it in that situation, but it seems like uh, I, I would agree that fiction probably lends itself better to that. I'm trying to keep these mostly evergreen just because for we'll lift the lift up the curtain here. I am trying to record several of these to kind of bank them up uh, while everybody is is sitting around at home with not much to do, but uh, potentially come on a podcast. But I do want to ask you, what is the communication process like uh, with with the NBA letting you know status of everything? And I know you can't tell us what anything is or what's going to happen, but do you get updates or are you just kind of out in the ether like everybody else? No, I'm, I'm out in the ether uh, like everyone. Uh, you know, I'm sure when, when the Mavericks find out what's what's going on, you know, they'll let me know. Uh, but you know, it, it's not like I, I, I have a direct line into Adam Silver's office <laughs> to, I wish I did you should work uh, to, on that. to know, what, uh, know what's going on. But, uh, frankly, I, to, to be fair to the commissioner, I don't, I don't even think he really knows what's going on right now. I mean, they're, they're putting together all kinds of contingencies. I think we all know that. And I think you have to do that. Any business has to do that, but you know, to, to know how this will play out, to know, you know, when there can be some return to normalcy, uh, no one has the answer to that. The, the smartest man on earth does not have the answer to that. You're a native of New York, and I'm going to guess that with all of the great broadcasters from that area that you were heavily influenced by a lot of the, the New York broadcasters, in particularly as a basketball guy, I would guess Marv Albert, a major influence of yours. Is that true? And explain how he maybe stoked the fire towards you becoming a professional broadcaster. Uh, there's no doubt he was the major influence. And I dare say, uh, you know, any one of us uh, between the ages of uh, 45 and 60 who grew up, uh, you know, in New York uh, in that period of time, if, if they if they don't tell you that Marv was the primary influence, then they're lying. They're just not telling you the truth. Um, it, it was the uh, the enthusiasm uh, and, you know, like every great broadcaster, the picture that he created for you uh, that, you know, back in the day, again, you know, it's not like every game was televised. Uh, and certainly there were very few, if any, home games that were televised so that when Marv was working from uh, from the garden, and especially when I was a kid, you know, it was still the old garden on, on 8th Avenue and 50th Street. You know, it's just the, the, the picture that was created from that so that when I ultimately did go to a few games there, uh, it's like, oh, you know, this is what it's like. You know, when Marv used to do hockey and, uh, you know, he would say, and, and the Rangers defend the goal to our left, the 31st Street uh, end of the garden. And it was just just incredible. And, you know, the the uh, the opposing team would defend the goal to our right, the 33rd Street end of the garden. And it just cre created an incredible picture as to, you know, what uh, you know, what was going on. And that just, you know, that got me excited. And obviously, you know, when I was a kid uh, in 1970, I was uh, you know, I was just about to turn 11 when when the Knicks won their first championship. You know, and, and all of our memories, I think, in, in, in sports are, are in large part uh, uh, put together because of what we witness, you know, in our formative years. Uh, and, 
you know, there are a lot. In fact, I guarantee there are a lot more things I remember about the 1970 Knicks winning the championship than I do say, you know, about the 19, you know, the, the 1981 Celtics winning the championship uh, or for that matter, even, you know, the 2015, uh, the first of the, the Warriors championships. And remember things about that. Uh, it's amazing what happens that so many things are are imprinted in your mind, in your youth, things that you will never forget. And he was uh, just a, a huge part of that. As an NBA broadcaster now, have you got to spend any time with him and pick his brain on the business at all? Not necessarily on the business, but, uh, you know, I have, uh, you know, we, we do come in contact with each other. I mean, it was funny, uh, this year he came to Dallas to do a game and he had not been to Dallas for three years which you know, speaks more to you know, where the Mavericks have been in the, in the pecking order of the NBA and, and the desire to put them on national TV than anything else. But, uh, but we, we had been, uh, you know, we had crossed paths pretty much over the last 15 years, uh, you know, that I've certainly been in the NBA. Uh, and I met him before when I was working in New York as a kid, but uh, had never really sat down and spent any significant time with him. Can you do a Marv Albert impression? No, I can't. I can't and I won't. I will, I will not defame the greatness of that by, by going there. <laughs> Fair enough. Was there a particular point in your development, in your life, where everything just kind of clicked and you decided you wanted to be a broadcaster? Did it happen young for you or did you figure it out later in life? No, it was young. Uh, it, it was definitely in high school. I mean, obviously, I was a huge sports fan. I, I loved watching and listening to everything. Um, and, you know, pretty much by the time I was 14 or 15 and, you know, I knew I wasn't going to grow up and be 6'10", uh, even though I love basketball, uh, but I wasn't going to grow up to be that tall. And, uh, you know, I love golf and uh, my mom was a tremendous uh, amateur in, in the Northeast at that time. Uh, and I played a lot, I played a lot of golf and, but I never knew, I knew that I would, you know, never have the desire to stand on the practice tee and, you know, hit 500 balls a day, uh, and, and the discipline to do that. Um, but I knew that I loved sports and I knew I could talk. Uh, so that's pretty much the, the avenue I decided to go down. And you decided to go to the university of Florida. What was the thought process behind that? Because I've told people if I could do it again, I would go someplace warm instead of a place in a, a northwest Iowa. What was uh, the thought process, instead of going to a Syracuse or uh, some of the broadcast schools in your area that you were going to go down south to Florida? Well, th there, were, there were several things. One, uh, I went to a very small private high school uh, on Long Island. Uh, my graduating class was 75, and I was not going to go to another small you know, Northeastern liberal arts college to, to do that just was not going to happen. I needed more people. Uh, number two, uh, you know, I needed a school that was big enough that, uh, yeah, I might I decide to uh, major in broadcasting, but what if I didn't like it? You know, what if, what if everything that I built it up to be wasn't that, you know, what was I going to do? And I needed enough options. So I wanted to be able to change my major as much as I needed to. Uh, number three, absolutely weather mattered. Uh, I, I was not going to – I was never a fan of cold and snow. Uh, I did want to go where it was warmer. Uh, and number four, I needed a football and basketball team to root for uh, on, you know, on Saturday during football season and throughout the, 
the basketball season. That was very, very important to me. So, um, you know, Florida was a, a wonderful experience. And as it turned out, it was it was even better than I thought it would be, given the opportunities that uh, were allotted me that uh, probably would not have existed at Syracuse. Uh, you know, maybe I could have uh, fought my way through and do all the things that the Syracuse guys have done. And obviously, you know, their proximity uh, to New York, uh, where a lot of the decision makers uh, are based, is really important to the to their opportunities uh, to, to to make their name. You know, certainly on uh, you know whether it's through ESPN or CBS or, or, or what have you. Uh, but uh, you know, I, I think just from the uh, the opportunity presented to work at a fully commercial radio station, which uh, the University of Florida has uh, and owns, uh, and understand commercial radio at that point. Uh, not to mention the, the TV opportunities uh, that you you could learn everything about the broadcast business uh, through their operation. I, I just thought it was a, a fantastic opportunity, and uh, and it was, and uh, I, I don't regret that decision in the least. We're not going to have to cancel the rest of the podcast if I tell you that my personal favorite sports moment came at the expense of the Florida Gators, will we? Nah, you're, you're, you're all right. Everybody's got theirs, so the, go right ahead. I'm a Nebraska native, so uh, I, the 1995... Yeah, I, yeah. We, we, we don't like that moment too much when Tommy <laughs> Frazier ran through about seven tackles along the sideline in Phoenix. That was that was not a very good night. Well, now that's all that I have to relive over and over again because we're terrible. But anyway, that's uh, just a short aside. But you, like a lot of people that I have talked to on this podcast, have started, in, started at Sports Phone, which is no longer a thing, but there's a remarkable number of broadcasters who went on to great success who got their introduction into the business at sports phone how did you get set up with sports phone and what are your memories of it well i actually answered a classified in the, in the new york times they actually put a classified in, and i can't call them and they said you know send your stuff and you know about two weeks later ultimately i i got a chance to to go in and start and you know, as for memories, we could do the whole podcast just on that. Uh, it, it was a, an absolutely phenomenal place to work and a phenomenal place to get experience because it was everything that radio was. The only difference was that you, your broadcast was going through New York Telephone and that, uh, you know, people were paying dimes or, you know, calling from their uh, their home phones and ultimately being charged. Uh, you know, to, to, to hear the broadcast. But, you know, that's that's the only difference. It wasn't going out over the air. It was just going through the phone. But uh, and ironically enough, given how sportscasts in general have been shortened uh, by radio stations through the years, uh, the fact that you had exactly 58 seconds to get your point across uh, made it uh, very important for you to be concise uh, and in, in the daytime when you were actually you know, doing news as opposed to just doing scores at night, uh, that you had to be able to write concisely. And it, it was it, the reporting aspect of it was great. We covered everything uh, in, in uh, the New York metropolitan area um, and you know, got, made uh, any number of connections that proved invaluable to me as, as my career unfolded. So uh, 
like I said, I mean, we, we could do uh, 30 minutes, 45 minutes, you know, just on sports phone and just on, on what it uh, what it was and just the the hold that it had, frankly, on so many people uh, in the pre-Internet era. Well, I don't know if we want to spend 45 minutes on it, but I want to spend a couple more because one of the things I understand about that service is that it was very popular with people who like to place a wager or two on the games <laughs> at that time, and that if you made a mistake or were off by a little bit one time, that they would get unhappy and that there were some fun stories in that regard. Do you have any? Absolutely. Uh uh, my favorite one is, uh, you know, when you're working at night, we used to work, the shift was from 6 p.m. to 2 a.m. or whenever the last game of the night was complete. And then you would put your final tape on and then, you know, go out or go home. And, well, one night, it's a college basketball Saturday night, and uh, we get done, and we get done actually pretty quickly, probably about like one fifteen. And uh, our guys, we all decide to go uh, a few blocks down to, to Runyon's. And I don't know if, you, if you're aware, but Runyon's was a, a noted uh, sports-based New York watering hole. But you know, not necessarily, it wasn't a sports bar in the sense of what, what we know sports bars to be today. But, I mean, it was just places where, where sports people hung out. And uh, our office was at uh, 919 Third Avenue and Runyon's was on 1st and 50th, which so it wasn't very far at all. So anyway, we go in and see, you know, we're we're all talking. Bartender sees me and, you know, he, he starts getting mad at me. He says, you know, you're going too fast, man. He says, I, I can't get everything in that you're that I need in in. You know, the 58 seconds that you have. And then, of course, you know, we also had at that time the supplemental line for the games that had taken place earlier in the day so or earlier in the evening so that people who might not have gotten it, uh, you know, through the regular line, then they'd have to spend another dime to go and, and get the score on the supplemental line. So and he's just saying, no, you're just too damn. You talk too fast. I can't understand you. That a lot of that. And so while all of this is going on, there's a woman sitting at the bar, uh, you know, maybe like three or four seats down. And again, this is, you know, we're probably at 145, two o'clock in the morning. And, you know, we all know there isn't a whole lot of good that happens after two o'clock in the morning or for that matter, after midnight. So in any case, she, she's listening to all this and she says, are you Chuck Cooperstein? And I said, yes, I am. And without batting an eye, she said, do you realize that you're responsible for 85 percent of all divorces in America? <laughs> I mean, what do you say <laughs> after something like that? That's an absolute showstopper. But that was the influence that sports phone had on so many people. And yes, on uh, those people, as you described, who uh, had uh, been willing to uh, put a little money down and needed to know the outcome of the game and needed to know on their terms, on their time, as opposed to waiting for the sportscast that would happen on the all news station, say at 15 and 45 past the hour and may not provide them the scores that they want. People in the Internet era, just they, they cannot you know, wrap their heads, their arms around the idea that you, know, you, you could not get scores instantly. But this was how people did it before the Internet came into being. When you were there, were you working with anyone who went on to become prominent in the business? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I worked with Charlie Slows. In fact, Charlie Slows is probably 
as responsible as anyone uh, for getting um, uh, my, my chance in Dallas because right after he had left sports phone to go to St. Louis to work at Camo X, you know, he got me in contact with the producer at Camo X who was looking for some U S open stuff uh, that was happening at Wingfoot that year, the golf championship. And so I did stuff for, for them. And as it turned out, Hale Irwin was, uh, was leaving the tournament halfway through Hale Irwin was a St. Louis native. And, uh, you know, they asked me, you know, can you get three minutes with Hale Irwin? And, uh, you know, of course today you could never do anything like this. But, uh, when I told the USGA press officer what I wanted, what I needed, uh, you know, absolutely. You know, as soon as he's done with his, uh, you know, stuff uh, for us, you got him. And so we so we went ahead and did it. And that ultimately led to a phone call from Brad Sham, uh, uh, who said, you know, you come highly recommended by uh, Rob Silverstein at Camo X in St. Louis. You know, can you send me your stuff? And I did. And then four weeks later, I got hired. But but Charlie's being in St. Louis was a huge was, you know, uh, an incredibly important part of this. Uh, Steve Cangelosi, who's now the, the TV voice of the Devils. Uh, you know, John Giannone, who I know works a lot for Madison Square Garden. Uh, you know, he he was there. Um, uh, you know, Michael Kay wasn't there when when I was there. You know, Gary Cohen and Al, I, and I had met Al Troutwig even after I got there. And uh, Al, well, after he left, but before I got there. But, um, you know, I, you're asking me to do this on the spot. And there's there are just a lot of other guys that I know, uh, you know, were a part of it. Uh, who have gone on to, you know, Eddie Caginelli, uh, who was a huge part of the, uh, the Yankees, uh, broadcast in the truck. Uh, you know, he was, he was a guy that uh, was, was there with us. It's, it's just a pretty, uh, long and remarkable list of people who had, uh, who had their initial opportunity come as a result of sports phone. You, this is a good time to transition because you started telling a little bit of the story of how you and Brad Sham, a friend of the podcast, uh, has, connected that ended up from you moving from New York to Dallas, which is certainly not a small move by any stretch of the imagination. Uh, what was, you pretty much told us how it happened. Was there any reservation about moving from New York to Dallas, just knowing that the lifestyle, it's not like you're moving to a podunk place in the middle of nowhere. Dallas is a huge market, but a little bit of a different lifestyle change. It had no qualms whatsoever. Knew it was a big city. Uh, knew I had the opportunity to work at a at a fifty thousand watt radio station uh, that you know had tremendous reach, uh, not just in inside of Dallas, but uh, you could hear it in in a whole lot of other places. Uh, obviously, was aware of uh, you know its reputation you know through, through the Cowboys, um, and uh, you know and I looked at it as an opportunity that you know I'm a you know yeah I grew up in New York, but I had already moved away for college. I'd lived outside of New York for four years before moving back. Uh, but, you know, I had never looked at uh, living in New York uh, as the be all and end all. Uh, I, I always thought that I would live outside of, uh, of New York. And so when this opportunity popped, it, it was, it took abs- it took less than no time to say yes. And the fact that uh, we were the, the, uh, the flagship station of the Cowboys and that I was going to have an opportunity to uh, to cover them and to uh, and to do a whole lot of other things as part of a fantastic all news operation. Uh, I was incredibly excited. And, you know, while my friends kind of 
uh, ask that the question that you had asked, well, you know, you know you, you're from New York, you're moving to Dallas, you don't know anybody there. And I looked at it and said, well, you know, I think I'm a pretty friendly kid. I think uh, I'm, I'm able to meet people. I'm not going to be a shut in. Dallas is a pretty big town. I think I'm going to be OK. And it's the greatest thing that ever happened to me. Did you have to get rid of any accent going from New York to Dallas? Because I don't oh, hear a lot of New York accent in you right now, but I thought I read that you used to have one. Did you have to well, try to get rid of that? I, I have one. Okay, there, there's no question that I have one. Uh, but, I, but I knew even uh, you know, in, in high school uh, that you know, I, there were certain things about my voice uh, that you know, I was told that I, I was going to need to correct. And, and as, as the, the, my, my speech teacher in, in high school said, you have a really nice Long Island accent. Uh, but, you know, there are things that you've got to be able to work on and most notably your R's, you know, that you can't say, you know, you, you, you have to be able to pronounce your R's. It's not a car. It's a car, you know, and, and, I'm, and, and I'm conscious of that today. And especially with a name like Carter, you know, when I, I have to make sure that that's where I'm going, even even today. But, uh, you know, it's funny because, uh you know, my, my son says, me, you have you have no accent. You have no New York accent. And my wife, uh, who also grew up in the, in the New York metropolitan area, but uh, who absolutely has no accent, uh, <laughs> looks at him like he's got three eyes and two an antenna coming out of his, uh, his head it, because it, it's definitely there. And I, I think you can hear it. Uh, but I don't think it's anything that's, uh, you know, that's that's overly offensive to to people who would be listening. And for, for some, I, I, I know people have that problem, but I, uh, I, I've tried to work really hard on that uh, and, and always have worked hard on that. So what do you do when you're trying to, to neutralize that a little bit? Because like you said, it, I can hear it a little bit, but it's not super prominent. But do you just have to focus each day on saying things a certain way? Are there like uh, verbal drills you put yourself through? I, I don't know. What would you do to no, do that? No, no, no verbal drills. Um, just it's just a recognition that you know you have this in you, and this is something that that you sh- really shouldn't have in you, and that you know in those situations with those particular words that you you know that you've just got to be uh, a little more careful with it. That's all. Uh, it, there's there's no great uh, formula or drill or any or anything like that. It's just an acknowledgement uh, in your mind that you know it's there and you make sure that uh, you respond appropriately. After eight years at KRLD, you moved back up to Philadelphia for a year to be part of a sports talk show. And after just a year, you moved back. And I was just curious because all of your other stops – uh, geographically, it seems like they lasted a little bit longer. Was it a bad fit? Did you just get too good of a job back in Dallas to pass up? What was the logic behind moving and then moving back so quickly? Well, the initial moving had everything to do with being unemployed for the first time at age 33 and absolutely scared to death of not working. And, you know, in, in and when this came along, and this came along very quickly, it basically came along about less than two weeks after KRLD had fired me. 
uh, you know, hey, I figured you know, same same thing as when I moved to Dallas, you know, I'm moving to Philadelphia. I mean, it's not a small market. Uh, it's a huge market. And I was going to have the chance to do something that at the time I really wanted to do, which was to host my own show. And in, in a town like Philadelphia, a great sports town, and uh, especially, you know, in, in my mind, you know, a great college basketball town, uh, that it, it, this would be perfect. And I was also at that time responsible for covering the Eagles for the station that I basically was their beat reporter. Uh, and so I, I loved everything about the opportunity. So it, to me uh, and, and my wife at the time also was a Philadelphia native. Uh, so that I figured if, if there was any place to move, that was as good a place as any to move. Um, but like anything else, uh, you know, you you learn over time, you know, you need to probably do a little more research. And I didn't research the program director enough uh, at the time. And uh, he was a very, very difficult guy to work for. Uh, although as a as a pure radio guy, he was absolutely brilliant. But uh, on a personal level, he was very difficult to work for. Uh, I couldn't – a lot of things that I wanted to be able to do uh, with my show, uh, he didn't want me to do. Uh, he very much discouraged my uh, desires to do play-by-play, -play, uh, which, you know – which again, in, in the interview process, you know, never came up. I mean, it, was, it ultimately was a shotgun marriage, uh, but uh, he very much discouraged it. And I said that that you know that had that ultimately it had to be uh, a part of what I was doing, and so I did. I did it. But uh, when the opportunity to move back to Dallas came, uh, it was an absolute no-brainer for me. Uh, I met some wonderful people in Philadelphia. I loved where I lived in Philadelphia. I lived in Cherry Hill, New Jersey. I absolutely loved it. It reminded me of my growing up on Long Island. Uh, but and, and there are people that I'm still very close to. And, uh, you know, Joe McDonald, uh, who does still does a lot of work at WIP, uh, you know, every time I go to Philadelphia, uh, I try to, you know, we try to get together, you know, the one time that we go in with the Mavericks. So we, we always try to get together, but we always stay in touch and, and in touch with a lot of the other guys, too. Uh, it, it, it was a wonderful learning experience for me in, in a lot of ways, professionally and personally. Uh, but, you know, I, I never wanted to leave Dallas in the first place. So when uh, the opportunity to move back came about, it was uh, it was a very easy call. I want to backtrack just a little bit because I read that you got let go from the ticket. I didn't know you got let go by KRLD. Uh, what happened there and what was your initial reaction? Because they say you haven't been in the industry until you've been fired. Uh, what was your reaction initially to, obviously you decided to move to Philadelphia. What was your initial reaction to that news? I was stunned uh, and I was scared. Uh, you know, I love KRLD. I love what we as a sports department had done at KRLD. Uh, but, you know, a program director came in and, and wanted to change the, the focus of what the radio station was, uh, especially because we had lost the rights to the Cowboys a couple of years before. And uh, he really tried to de-emphasize sports. And frankly, the sports department was the strongest part of the radio station. And so, you know, he and I got into some fairly 
uh, animated battles. Um, and again, um, uh, at that time, being as, as young as I was, uh, I probably didn't massage it as well as I maybe could have. Not that it would have changed the outcome any, probably wouldn't have. Uh, but, uh, you know, he, he decided that, uh, uh, that, that I needed to go. And so I went and it was, uh, it was an, an incredibly scary time. Um, uh, and that, you know, led to when, when WIP, uh, called me, uh, that, uh, you know, I, I wasn't going to ever think about not working and especially not have the opportunity if it comes to, to work in a top five market, which Philadelphia was. This might be relatable to a lot of people who listen to this because at radio stations, whether it's a big one or a small one in a huge market or a tiny market, you know, sometimes you just have, uh, we'll call them creative differences with general managers or program directors or whatever the authority figure is going to be. What do you think the right balance between pushing to what you want to do and what you need to get to your goals and acquiescing to what the the authorities want you to do? What's the proper balance there? It's a great question. I don't know that I have the answer because I don't know that I've really uh, answered it properly. Uh, in, in the two times that I've been fired, uh, you know, basically I've always been true to myself, true to my beliefs of what I believed was best for for my radio show and 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 the things that i did well uh you know i I wouldn't say that i'm necessarily opposed to change but you can't take away from the essence of what that person is and i think in in both cases at krld and at the ticket uh i i believe that they they were messing with the essence of of who i was and I just wasn't going to have that. And it's it's probably the reason why, as the uh, the, the sports talk uh, genre has has evolved over time, that uh, you know maybe I wasn't the best talk show host because I, I knew what I wanted to talk about. I I had a vision for what I thought sports talk radio ought to be, and uh, that vision was not shared. And I and I didn't really want to acquiesce into something else that uh, anybody else had in mind with regard to that. And I just want to touch on your time at the ticket quickly, because I want to talk mostly about your time with the Mavs for the majority of of this show. But you were there as part of their original lineup, which is somewhat unique, knowing that there's no blueprint for what you're trying to do going into a situation what was it like being the, kind of the underdog in a market trying to take down uh, the the big heavyweight? I don't remember what the station was called. I, it's on the tip of my tongue. But you were competing with some pretty established brands. What did you guys do, and what was it like trying to play the David role? Well, it's pro- it's as much fun as I've ever had. Uh, in sports, in sports talk, in, in working for a radio station. Uh, you know, we, everybody knew everybody. You know, n- nobody had come in from the outside. I mean, technically, I guess I did because I moved back from Philadelphia. But, uh, you know, clearly I had been in the market. I knew the market as it was. Uh, and I, I just think, you know, we, we all brought something different to the table that made us a really unique operation. 
and uh, and the fact that we all liked each other and rooted for each other and were supportive of each other, uh, which was a a far cry from where I had been in Philadelphia, where pretty much you know everybody was in their own silos. You know, the morning show was their deal. You know, my deal. Uh, you know, I, obviously, I be, I became friends with Jody. Jody and I, you know, did some some crosstalk st- uh, stuff in in Philly. But uh, you know, the after the afternoon show, uh, evening, everybody was doing their own thing, and th- there was very little camaraderie. And maybe because you know the station had been around long enough uh, to to be established, so they could act like that. But with us, you know, we had we had to do everything. Um, you know, we we were you know regard. The, the, the phrase that, you know, Mike Reiner, you know, who, who formed the radio station, you know, started, we, we were the little ticket, you know, we, we were the little engine that could. And the, the fact that we had that camaraderie um, and, and difference of style, I think, made us really special because, you know, at that we we were able to give people, you know, a little bit of everything. You know, there were there were certain guys who were, you know, great at uh, great at doing skits. You know, great at doing voices. And there were others, you know, like me, who were, you know, very, you know, fact driven, uh, fact driven shows and, and, and very hard, you know, hardcore sports shows. And so, you know, we, we had something that appealed to everyone. And I think that's the biggest reason why it succeeded and why it was so much fun. And I found two different dates as to when you started with the Mavs. I'm pretty sure it was 2005. Walk us through the series of events that led to you becoming the voice of the Mavericks. Well, I had been working at the radio station that had the rights. Uh, ESPN Radio in Dallas uh, got the rights uh, really uh, when we went on the air in uh, April of 2001. Uh, And... So I, I was working for the station already. I had already been doing, you know, a lot of national games uh, for Westwood One uh, on on the college level, uh, and I was also doing a, a lot of uh, Mavericks pregame and postgame stuff. Uh, really, for the fir- for the probably the the two years prior uh, to my getting the job, and so you know, it, and it was it was really ironic because in in 1998. The, uh, the Mavericks job had opened and I was called about it. But at that time, uh, I had just been hired by WBAP uh, to do a nighttime talk show after after I'd been fired by Carol D. And I had been out of work for about uh, uh, or by, by the ticket. And I've been out of work for, for three months. And I, I told, uh, you know, that the Mavericks, said, well, we want you to come in. We want you to interview and blah, 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 blah. And I, and I told them, I said, look. Said I can't do that. Said these guys just hired me. These guys just took me off the scrap heap. Uh, you know, I I owe it to them to to do this. Now, if you're telling me that I've got the job, I can realistically go to you know to management and say, look, I got this opportunity. This is better for me. I've got to go. But I can't. I couldn't go to them and say, well, you know, the Mavericks want to talk to me about this and. Uh, you know, w- without any kind of guarantee at all. And of course, at that time, the Mavericks were terrible and I had the reputation of being a straight shooter and they were worried that uh, I might be a bit too critical of them on the air. Um, you know, look, I- I've always known where my bread is buttered, uh, but I've also believed in it never, uh, never fooling with the audience. The, the audience is, is smarter than 
than maybe a lot of people want to give them credit for. They know who's playing well. They know who's playing poorly. Uh, you know, you, you it's, you're not going to denigrate the product, but you're also not going to oversell it to the point where people look at you as totally unrealistic. So that, so, you know, as an aside, you know, I had had that potential opportunity seven years prior, never thought I'd get the chance again. And then, um, Matt Pinto, uh, or I should say uh, Matt Pinto, who had been doing, who actually got that job in 98, then moved over to television, uh, was, uh, he, he was going to leave the market and, uh, you know, the Mavericks were ready to move Mark Folliwell, who had been doing radio up to television. And I was in the right place at the right time. I was already working for the radio station and, uh, my ops manager, Scott Masteller, you know, he, there was never, uh, any hesitation on his part, he basically told the Mavericks, said, look, this is who I want to get the job. And the Mavericks did not have a problem with that. And by then, obviously, we'd had the sale of the team. And, you know, a lot of the people there, you know, knew who I was, and knew my background, blah, 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 blah. And I got the job. I think one thing I want to unpack there, you mentioned, you know, these guys were good enough to pick me off the scrap heap. I don't want to go through a whole in- interview process out of respect for them. As a person who's, you know, had some maybe contentious firings, where do you, when do you decide to be loyal to somebody? And when do you decide, you know what, this is a cutthroat, ruthless business. I'm going to take care of me. Well, I guess I was just really naive about it. I mean, I just, you know, I, I, I don't know that I can answer that question, Logan. I mean, I think it was just, I thought at that time that was the right thing to do. And I mean, as it turned out, it was, you know, it was a great opportunity. Um, uh, you know, I was doing a four hour talk show on a, you know, on arguably uh, the, the 50,000 watt blowtorch of the great Southwest. I mean, based on WBAP went into 38 states and uh, they also uh, at that time uh, had had the rights to the, to the Dallas stars. And I started, you know, going to work for them and, and really, uh, you know, believing that, while they were simulcasting at the time uh, that there was going to be a point where they were going to break up that simulcast. And then I was going to do uh, Dallas stars radio. I, I, I believe that. And, you know, there were you know several people in the stars organization who had told me that, you know, at the, at the time. So it, it, I had, uh, I, I had a really good feeling about the radio station. Uh, I had a very good feeling about the guy I was working for at the radio station. And I just, at, I just thought it was the right thing to do then. I mean, I think every situation is, is its own, uh, but I really liked who I was working for WBAP. And I said, you know, if I had the chance, you know, if the Mavericks had given me the play-by-play opportunity right away, uh, I would have gone to him and said, Hey, you know, here's the deal. I got to do this. And I think, he, and I think he would have understood. Uh, and that would have been cool. But, uh, but without that guarantee, I just didn't feel comfortable doing it. And maybe other people would. But but I just wasn't. And I didn't mean that as any kind of criticism. It's just a, you know, this is a hard business. Sometimes having that loyalty pays off. Sometimes it screws you over down the line. You never really know. But it's always an interesting topic to see what people think about it. You had an impressive list of freelance play-by-play positions throughout your time in Texas, whether they're on the national level for Westwood One and Dial Global or basically any of the major colleges in Texas at one point you've covered their games. How did you build 
that freelance portfolio in a big market? Well, uh, I mean, that actually started my very the first year I was in Dallas in 1984. The uh, the Southwest Conference radio network existed at that time. And again, uh, the, the idea of what I'm about to tell you, if, if you translate it to today, people would just look at that and say, like, really? Like this happened? Well, anyway, the, the Southwest Conference uh, had it basically its own its own network where the, the, the schools were obviously all a part of this. And this goes back to the days of of uh, humble oil uh, and really into the into the 40s and 50s. And uh, I don't know if you're familiar with a guy named Current Tips, but uh, Current Tips was the was the voice of Southwest Conference football, uh, you know, throughout the throughout the, the 50s, the, the 40s, the 50s, and I think even into the 60s. Um, but in any case, uh, you know, every school had its own had its own broadcast. But when they were playing conference games, uh, the home team would do the play by play. The visiting team would do the color, which led to some sometimes very awkward exchanges on the broadcast, depending on what was happening. But there was also a studio element to the show, and the studio element was based in Dallas. And so uh, about the ninth or tenth week of the season, I was uh, I, I got a call from uh, a guy named Dick Gabriel, who, who works in Lexington, Kentucky now, but he, he had been uh, sent to Dallas by Host Communications, which owned the rights to the Southwest Conference Network. And he called me up and said, hey, you know, how would you like to come in and, uh, you know, start learning how to be, you know, a, a studio guy for us? I said, awesome. It's great. Fantastic. So, and I'll never forget this story where it, it's, it's mid-November. Uh, TCU was going to play Texas that day. Uh, T- this was the year of, uh, you know, TCU uh, coming out of nowhere uh, to be ranked uh, 10th, uh, 12th in the country, I think, going into the game. And Texas was ranked 10th. And so that that was the highlight game of the day. Uh, And basically, I thought I was walking in to train. And so, you know, I'm told to show up whenever and and I do. And uh, Dick says to me, well, (laughs) are you ready to go on and do this? (laughs) <laughs> looked at him like he had lost his mind and said, Hey, I've never, I haven't done any of this. I wasn't, you told me I was just coming here to train. I wasn't here to actually host and whatever. And I, I didn't know the setup. And I mean, I kind of knew the format, but you know, I, I wasn't, I hadn't had any formal training on this. So he wanted doing the, the pregame lead into the first game of the day, which is about a, 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 a half hour lead in. I mean, there was a lot of stuff that was going on. And then uh, basically from that point forward, you know, I was, I wound up doing everything and, you know, be, being the studio guy for all, all of these games and, you know, cutting the highlights and doing all this stuff. It, it was just, it, it was just the, the craziest, most insane uh, unpredictable day that uh, to that point of my of my career that I could ever remember. It was, you know, I literally was thrown into the deep end and told to swim. You were thrown right into a situation, and it would be easy to panic and not perform well. Did you just have to calm yourself? Say, okay, I can do this. This is what I've been, you know, training for for my whole career. How did you get yourself in a good headspace 
to be able to take advantage of that opportunity, even though you weren't necessarily expected or prepared for it. Yeah, I definitely had to calm down. Uh, but, you know, the people that I w- was with were, were people that I knew. And they said, look, you, you've got this. I mean, you know all this stuff. And, you know, it, it was more a matter of the, the mechanics of it. It was more a matter of, you know, knowing how to work the equipment uh, and, how to, and how to get that ready to go. Uh, than than really anything as related to what you might be doing, uh, you know, at halftime or at uh, particular cut-ins uh, during the course of the game. It was it's really all the all the mechanical stuff uh, that you know w- unfamiliarity with the equipment, with the studio, you know, wh- you know what button to push to make sure that I'm in the right place, the right time. And once I got once I figured that out, which didn't take long. Uh, you know, it probably took a, a couple of uh, a couple of run throughs the, the first couple of games of the day. Then uh, then it worked out OK. Your first year as the voice of the Mavericks, you get to go to the finals. Uh, how was that for you? And did you expect to be back there every year? Did you appreciate it? Did you take for granted? How did you approach that broadcast opportunity? Uh Let's see. Let's work backwards. Uh, I, yes, uh, I thought, of course, <laughs> this is the way it's supposed to be. We're going to be playing into June every year. Uh, it was certainly being in the right place at the right time. Uh, it was a wonderful experience with a terrible ending. Uh, but it was, uh, you know, it, you know, life in the NBA was was everything that I had hoped that it would be. And what made it uh, obviously winning makes it great, but doing just doing all the work, watching uh, from a courtside seat, uh, watching the best players in the world every night do their thing uh, was absolutely fantastic. You know, I'd cover the Knicks a little bit, um, you know, when I was uh, back in New York and we had uh, at the time sports phone had a seat like right next to the Knicks bench, which was just an amazing seat. And obviously, you know, when uh, when I moved to Dallas and covered the Mavericks for a long time, you know, media sat courtside. But now, you know, obviously the difference here is that I'm responsible for describing to you what is going on in that seat, which just made it so much more special. And it was it was it was an amazing year. And yes, I thought that uh, we'd be back uh, in the finals uh, or at least, you know, fighting for it year after year. I mean, the next year, the Mavericks win 67 games. You know, after losing the first four games of the year, and uh, they, then they wind up losing to Golden State in the first round, and then and that was the other end. It's like you realize, well, you know, not, nothing is ever given, uh, nothing is automatic, uh, and you know, basically in the course of the, my first two years, experienced uh, you know the the highest of highs and the and the lowest of lows. When you did get the opportunity in 2011 to actually call a championship team. Not necessarily how much did you appreciate it, but when you knew that that was going to be a reality, when did you start thinking about what you were going to say for your last call? Um, well, it was certainly not scripted, uh, but, you know, you, you always have it in your mind of, you know, what's what's the image that you want to project? And mine was, you know, what's the hardest thing in the world to do? In my mind, the hardest thing in the world to do is to climb Mount Everest and stand on top, literally on top of the world. And I was thinking of Edmund Hillary. And so, you know, when when the Mavericks ultimately 
won game six in Miami, that was the image that I tried to project. And, you know, I, I think it turned out okay. I think a lot of people seem to like it, but uh, it was certainly not scripted, and I would never believe in scripting anything like that. We touched on Brad Sham and his influence on your career earlier. What, outside of giving you the opportunity to move down to Dallas and get your toes wet in that market, how else has he helped you throughout your career to develop as the broad into the broadcaster you are? Well, Brad was a preparation fiend and still is a preparation fiend. And I, and I think I really learned the value of that from him. You know, there's, there's nothing, there's nothing too obscure uh, for you to uh, have in, in your arsenal because you never know when you're going to need it. And, uh, and, and that can be a humorous nugget and that can be, you know, something very serious. Uh, you know, it can be something, you know, related to the game or, you know, related to, to, to the, to the league or, you know, the sport that you're covering or, or anything. And so, you know, that's why, you know, kids, uh, always ask like, you know, how long does it take for you to prepare to do a game? And, and my answer always is, uh, there, there is no set time limit because you're always preparing. You're always reading. You're always listening. Uh, you know, and that's whether that's, you know, in person with coaches and players or other media or, you know, the reading that you do from, from game notes or, uh, newspaper stories or, you know, stuff that's on the web that can help you. I mean, it, it never ends. And so I think Brad really taught me the value of that and how to best use it uh, in the course in the course of a broadcast. Tell us about the time you did an hour of your talk show standing on your head. <laughs> okay, I was at the ticket, and again, I was not much for bits at the ticket, but. Um, this was 1995, and uh, the the All Star uh, balloting had was approaching, the, and the managers were going to name the reserves and the pitching staffs and all that stuff. And the Rangers had a pitcher named Roger Pavlik, uh, who had a terrific record. Uh, he was 11 and two, but he had an earned run average of over five. And of course, this, this is back before the days of analytics would have completely eliminated this guy, you know, from any consideration at all. Um, but I said, because you know, I mean, Roger Pavlik was the, was the beneficiary of a fantastic Rangers offense. And I said, there is no way you can have a pitcher with an earned run average of over five in the all-star game. That's just incomprehensible to me. So anyway, uh, I went away. I went away on vacation. Uh, when the All-Stars were announced. And I'll never forget, uh, I was in the Hilton Head, South Carolina, and I'm watching Sports Center, and the <laughs> reserves and pitchers came up, and by golly, there was Roger Pavlik, chosen by Mike Hargrove with the Cleveland Indians. And I had said on the air, Roger Pavlik makes the All-Star game. I will do an hour of my show standing on my head. Well, of course, this happens everybody's trying to find me, but this is before cell phones existed. So nobody could find me and I was on vacation. And then I finally got back to town and I, I knew I was going to have to make good on this, but how are we going to do this? So, uh, there was, uh, I guess a fitness place that had an inversion table 
And uh, so well, we're, we're going to do that. You know, we're going to do this. And so I announced it on the, the show that Monday night, I guess the, the next Tuesday night or whatever it was that I was going to do the last hour of the show, you know, standing on my head. And so uh, we get the table and I get on it. I start and I do it. And we've got you know, the, t- the four local TV stations are there recording this. And ultimately, uh, we took the the screen that would tell me, you know, where the calls are coming from. And they they turned the screen upside down so I could read them. And, you know, now after every 15 minutes, you know, the, every segment was about 15 minutes. So I would get upright at that point. You, could, you cannot you cannot be on your head for a full hour without just totally bursting your brain. So anyway. We turn the monitor over. I'm looking at the calls and Craig Miller walks into the studio. And if you know Craig at all, Craig has this most infectious laugh that when he starts laughing, you start laughing. And he walks in. He sees all this and he just starts cracking up and I start cracking up and I'm totally losing control of everything that I'm doing. Uh, And, you know, we got some television coverage out of it and. Uh, you know, I got, uh, you know, got a, a nice attaboy from management for, uh, you know, trying to play along with the, with the game and what they were trying to do you know, at the radio station, you know, trying to lighten things up. Uh, but ultimately it didn't save me. So, uh, but, but it was, uh, but it was a fun thing to do. And certainly a lot of people do remember it, but it, uh, it, it definitely happened that way. Another unique story I found regarding your talk show host career Having Wilt Chamberlain sit in the studio with you for was it an hour an entire show? I, I didn't get yeah, that. He wasn't, in the stu- he wasn't in the studio. He was on the phone. Okay, he was on the phone. But uh, you know, when I was in Philadelphia, I became friends with uh, with Sonny Hill. Uh, you know, Sonny Hill was a basketball impresario, and if uh, it, I don't know how many people hearing this will remember, but when CBS had the NBA rights back in the seventies, Sonny Hill was a studio analyst for them. But in any case, uh, Sonny also used to do a Sunday morning radio show at WIP. And our paths had crossed uh, on several occasions. And he's, I mean, really, he's one of those guys that literally he knows the world. I mean, you you ask Sonny, you know, give me so-and-so's phone number. Sonny has it. Sonny, or if he doesn't have, he knows how to get in touch with that guy. It's, it's really quite incredible. But anyway, you know, Sonny and Wilt went back, you know, to high school. I mean, they, they, they knew each other. And so this was at the height of, is Michael Jordan the greatest player ever? And I was always on the Wilt side because I was always a believer in the big man. Uh, and still to this day, I'm a believer in the big man, uh, even as he is being more and more marginalized in the NBA game. In any case, uh, I called Sonny and I said, hey, I said, here's what I'm going through. I said, what do you think the chances are that Wilt would come on my show? And even before I finished the question, he said, it's done. Done. So we get Wilt. And, you know, I was expecting to have Wilt for maybe, you know, 15 or 20 minutes and whatever. And we're we're going and he's you can tell. And I really wish I still had the audio of this and I don't. uh, But you could tell that he was into this. 
He knew that he, he had a guy who was a supporter of his and I could get him to tell stories about, you know, his basketball exploits and especially playing against Bill Russell and you know his relationship with Russell and, and all of this stuff that was going on. And uh, we, we get to a point and he said, you know, uh, we, we had we had to get to a break and I said, uh, you know, Will, would you mind you know, staying through the break and you know, maybe even taking a few calls? And he said, absolutely. And it's like my, my producer, Rick Arnett, is looking at me and saying, oh, my God. It's like, really? It's like this was so it was awesome. And so he, you know, people, the phone bank lit up. Wilt was there. I mean, he could not have been greater. It, it, it could not have been a more uh, seminal moment for me uh, in my in my talk show career than to have him on and for him to, to wanting to stay on to where we had to rearrange a whole lot of other stuff that we had planned. But once we got him on the hook, we were not letting him go. That had to be an awfully memorable experience. Uh, one of the things, that, I'm going to finish this up here pretty quick. We're at about an hour. That's where I like to keep this, although I think there's a lot of interesting stuff we could keep going on. But one of the things, you are of the Jewish faith, and you do not do games on the high holidays. Is that When did you make that decision? Was it easy? Was it hard? Did it ever come up with management, or has it been a non-issue? It's been a non-issue. Um and it was very easy. Uh, you know, Sandy Koufax missed pitching game two of the 1965 World Series because it fell on Yom Kippur. And I figured if, if Koufax can miss a game, uh, if miss a World Series game because of that, well, then I can miss uh, a preseason game or I can miss a football game if, if I was you know, having to do a football game that week. Uh, it was really a, a, a not a, an easy call for me to make. And it's not because I'm terribly religious because I'm really not. Uh, but, but I do re, uh, respect the custom and the tradition uh, of it. And that's I, I just feel it's the right. You know, for me, it's the right thing to do. You've been really fortunate for most of your career covering the Mavericks. You were covering Dirk Nowitzki, and he does amazing things for most of his career, I should say, did amazing things every single game. Did you ever have to focus on making sure that when he did that, and because he did it so often, that they didn't begin to sound normal or mundane? No, I don't think so, because generally I'm a pretty excitable sort anyway. <laughs> it, it doesn't take much for me to be enthusiastic in the moment. So, uh, you know, what, what, what Dirk did on a nightly basis is something I never took for granted. And it then as he was in the process of setting you know, all these milestones, you know, getting to 25,000 points and, and then getting to 30,000 points, uh, you know, in those particular moments, you know, nice round numbers. You know, you want to make sure that you have it right. And you're also hoping that he doesn't do it on a free throw. <laughs> and fortunately, in, in those situations, he didn't do it on a free throw. And so it just made it uh, you know, all the more fun, all the more special. And he's certainly uh, among, if not the most special people that I've ever had the privilege to cover uh, because he just got it in every imaginable way. And you could correct me if I'm wrong on this, and we'll hit the edit button if I'm wrong, because I couldn't confirm this on my research. But I'm pretty sure 
there is a young man named Jeffrey Cooperstein in the business in the Dallas area, and I assume there's a connection there. Uh, I believe he's your son. He is my son. What advice did you give him about getting into this business? I told him there were a lot of other uh, easier ways to make money, but you'll probably never have more fun than than doing this. And, you know, for however long you're willing to, you know, hang in there and, uh, you know, take the low pay and long hours and the bad hours uh, to ultimately get to where you want to go, then, uh, then, then have at it. And if you don't want to do that, then that's okay too. I mean, he, he figured out pretty early on, even though he was a really smart kid and, you know, knew an awful lot, uh, that he didn't want to do play by play. He didn't like it. He, he saw what, what I did and what I had to do, at least for me, uh, to, to get ready to go do this stuff. And he was, uh, he said, you know, I, I don't know that that's for me. And then, you know, he spent some time in the production truck. Uh, outside, uh, you know, outside the arena with uh, with the Mavs producers and directors, and uh, and I said to him after one time, uh, well, "What'd you think?" I, said, I hated it. I said, "Why'd you hate it?" I said, "Well, uh, I wasn't in the arena." I said, "Okay, this is good. Uh, you know, you you now know you know what is important to you." And I just told him, I "said Look, no matter, uh, you have to find something that's going to get you to the game." And it really doesn't matter what form it takes. And if you can, if you can do that and hang in there and you know take the the necessary bumps that everybody takes, then then it'll be cool and you'll have a, a job that you always love that you'll always want to wake up to every day. And if it doesn't happen, then you know you'll you'll go find something else. One of the things I ask everybody before they go is to share what I like to call a broadcast horror story, and that's not actually a horrific event, but just a, something that really weird that happened in a broadcast, whether it's all your equipment breaking down simultaneously or a fan doing something strange or a horrible broadcast vantage point, something weird that's happened throughout uh, your career that makes for a fun story to tell now. Well, um, I mean, there now that uh, you know the NBA has moved us off the floor. Uh, in most cases, that there are a lot of bad vantage points to to work from. But I don't. Ultimately, I don't think people really care about that first world problem as much. Um, I'm, I'm I'm thinking about this as I go along. Okay, well, uh, Game Six in Miami in 2011. Um, you know, we're sitting at the back of the lower bowl, but there is no one to keep people away from us. Uh, you know, people can walk behind us as the, as the game is going on. And this is the only place where that happens. And it's really not a good situation. And it became a particularly bad situation when I realized uh, in the course of the celebration after the Mavericks won that somebody had taken my wallet out of my, out of my coat jacket and my, I taken my coat jacket off because it was, you know, it was June 12th and it's, it was hot in the arena. It was just hot everywhere. And somebody literally reached in and took my wallet and, you know, and at that time I didn't have a driver's license, something, you know, how am I going to get on the plane the next day to get out of here and do all this? And, uh, and then came to realize right away that, the guy had taken, or the person, I don't know if it was a guy or a girl, took my wallet, 
and proceeded to take my credit card and charge $3,400 at the Hard Rock Cafe Casino in, uh, in Fort Lauderdale, <laughs> which we managed to get taken care of, but you know, then had to redo all of my the driver's license and the credit cards and you know, all the inconvenience and that goes along with that. Uh, but that's uh, that that's something I'll never forget. That was pretty bad. That's definitely a good one. <laughs> <laughs> and so when I say vantage points, I don't necessarily just mean being high up. Uh, I think one day I was looking through a wall behind the basket and the scoreboard was on the other side of the wall. So it was impossible to see the score or the time or anything. So uh, that's what well, I, I will say. Extreme my, my, vantage my, points. My, yeah. My favorite story about vantage points comes from uh, uh, Joe Tate, you know, who used to do the Cavaliers uh, when Boston moved us to where we are now, which is basically in a corner where we are watching the game in a corner you know, basically, if you're watching on TV, it would be to the left of the Celtics bench. But, you know, you're, you're looking across the floor and the stanchion blocks out a, a good portion of the other side of the floor. And Joe Tate, uh, late in his career, when again, he, he could say anything and get away with it, nobody was going to say anything about it. Joe Tate at one point said, and, uh, you know, here's a pass and uh, in the corner by a shot and a shot by a player to be named later because there was no way to say who the player was. And it's, uh, it's, it's one of my favorite stories about that situation and that location. Who are your favorite broadcasters to listen to on an off day? Oh goodness. Um, <laughs> uh, you know, I mean, in, in basketball or, or anywhere, either give us like a big national name and somebody who's lesser known in the Dallas Metro area. Well, uh, frankly, I love listening to John Forslund do hockey. I think he is absolutely fantastic. I think Doc is fantastic. Uh, but I, I just love the resonance and the pacing that, uh, that John has doing the Hurricanes. And, uh, you know, I've, I've gotten to meet him uh, a few times. And uh, I just, I, I just, he's a wonderful guy and he's a fantastic broadcaster. Uh, I, I really love him. You know, NBA, our NBA radio guys, we've got a lot of great radio guys. I would kill for Kevin Calabro's baritone. <laughs> I would just kill for that. I, I think, you know, my counterpart with the Mavericks, Mark Falwell, is just absolutely sensational uh, at what he does. Uh, you know, I love Sean Grandy's sense of humor uh, on the Celtics broadcast. I, I just think he's he's wonderful. Uh, it, there are really, you know, too many to mention. Uh, you know, and you mentioned earlier, you know, about my love and Marv growing up. Uh, but I love Dick Enberg. I love listening to Dick Enberg and the passion and the emotion uh, that he brought to games. Because I think, you know, the first thing we, we tell uh, aspiring broadcasters is, you know, you've got to be excited. You've got to sound like you care. Uh, because if you don't care, if you don't care, why should I care? And I, I think he, you know, he and Marv were, were just really uh, fan, just wonderful at that. I, you know, I love Merle Harmon growing up. Uh, you know, Lindsey Nelson, you know, all, all of those guys. There are, there are a lot of great people working in our business today, you know, who, who would uh, really uh, take that aspect of broadcasting. And to me, it's, it's among the most basic aspects of broadcasting, besides saying the damn score that you could possibly have. Well, I was just going to say the final question was going to be, how did you properly train yourself to say the damn score enough and frequently? 
did you were you able to just pick it up naturally, or did you have to do anything no, to no, drill it in? And, and I and I at times do still struggle with it because I do get myself lost in the game to the point where I don't. I, I probably don't say it enough. Although I think I, in the last several years, I've gotten, I think I've gotten much better at it. Um, I'm much more aware of it. And a lot of that came from my son, uh, who one night was listening to me and said, you don't say the score enough. You've got to tell me what the score is. And, I, and then I would listen back and I probably did it a little more than what he said I was doing, but I really wasn't doing it enough. Uh, so that, that is, uh, you know, I, I, I've always you know, look, we all know that you have to do that. And one of the biggest problems that TV guys have when they come over to radio, and we see this a lot with the ESPN guys during the bowl season uh, when they're doing ESPN radio, is they don't say the score enough because they're so used to having the score bug up and that takes care of all that for them. Well, you know, on radio, you can't do that. You, you're not afforded that luxury. Uh, so uh, it's it's absolutely essential. And. Uh, like when I, when I saw the name of your podcast, I said, "My goodness, what a fantastic name for a radio podcast!" <laughs> Nothing could be better than that because it's so true, and it's so obvious, but it's so true. That was the wisdom of my college professor, who didn't know much about play-by-play. He would say, "You did a nice job, but say the damn score more." And uh, that's uh, that's how that got drilled into my head, but. Uh, once again, we are visiting with Chuck Cooperstein, the radio voice of the Dallas Mavericks. And Chuck, if anybody wanted to reach out to you uh, via social media or any other methods that you're comfortable giving out on a podcast, how would they do so? Uh, I'm on, uh, obviously, I'm, I'm on Facebook. Uh, and if you want to reach me on Twitter, I am at CoopMavs, C-O-O-P-M-A-V-S. All right, well, I'm going to go rewatch my tape of the 1995 Nebraska Tostitos Fiesta Bowl win over the Florida Gators. But uh, thanks, Chuck, for coming on the show. Logan, don't cheer after they get to 56, okay? (laughs) All right, this has been the Say the Damn Score podcast. Thanks for listening to the Say the Damn Score podcast. Remember to subscribe to the show on the platform of your choice by clicking the big red subscribe button at the top of saythedamnscore.com or just searching for Say the Damn Score on your favorite podcast app. Also, please follow me on your favorite social media outlet. And remember, Apple Podcast reviews, emails, or any other kind of honest feedback is always greatly appreciated and helps me make the show better. Finally, please reach out to the guests of this show, in this case, Chuck Cooperstein. But if you're listening to the back catalog for whatever reason, Reach out to everybody. Just let them know that you heard their story and that you appreciated them coming on the Say the Damn Score podcast. As always, I'm your host, Logan Anderson, and the next time you're on the air, make sure to say the damn score just a little bit more.